Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. I'm so excited about today's guest. I followed her in the non-stalker way, of course, from the beginning when she burst onto our TV screens and very pleased to report that she's completely lovely, very honest, and she knows good food. You may hear at one point, I bemoan the lack of an English summer. (laughs) So you will guess from that that we recorded this a little while ago when Rachel was in London and before the UK officially melted in the heatwave. This is delicious, so biscuits at the ready, here is today's episode. My guest today is Rachel Koo. Rachel is a British cook, writer, and broadcaster. She rose to fame in 2012 when she published The Little Paris Kitchen, and later, The Little Paris Kitchen, Cooking with Rachel Koo, was commissioned as her first TV series with the BBC. The book became a bestseller, millions of people watched her on TV, and the rest, as they say, is history. Rachel has gone on to write many more books with her sixth book, The Little Swedish Kitchen, having just come out. She has presented and created many more TV series, and she is firmly on the map as a well-known TV personality. As if that weren't enough, Rachel is also the founder and editor-in-chief of online lifestyle magazine, Collect. Rachel describes herself as a food creative with a fresh approach to all things edible. Welcome, Rachel. (laughs) Thank you. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you. (laughs) Tell me about that description of what you do, the term food creative. Why do you prefer that to chef or cook? Well, first of all, I need to apologize for my husky voice. I've got a bit of a cold. So if I have this, oh, hello. <laughs> Never apologize for a husky voice. <laughs> it's not done on purpose. And it's not from me going out clubbing or raving oh, and, or something like Rachel, that. Rachel, that's so disappointing. I know. I'm sorry. Those days are firmly over. Um, yeah. So why do I prefer food creative? Well, I think it was because when I started off in the business, I literally got a project whether it was an event or you know food styling and I always felt like I approached it in a creative way I wasn't there wasn't one solution so if I was doing a pop-up dinner this was like in 2007 you know pop up, you know things <laughs> like going back this was before pop-ups were pop-ups you know um I remember doing a madman themed uh like pop-up and <gasps> I made a cigarette packet. So I I printed out the packaging, made the box, and then I made these grazzini sticks. Wow. To be cigarette size. And then you had like ashtray tapenade. Oh my goodness. So that sounds amazing. I think that's quite a creative approach to food. I would say so, yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess. You're very creative in all aspects of your life. Like we're sitting in your amazing kitchen at the moment that you've designed and you obviously studied design. So I think you're sort of, you're carrying that through to all aspects of your life, aren't you? I would definitely say everything I've done in my life. So I went to art college, I studied design, and then I worked in fashion, PR, marketing, all these things, even though they're not food related, are 
so important to my work now. And I use them consistently. I mean, if I think about the PR marketing background, you know, if you want to sell a cookbook, because I want to write more cookbooks, I need to sell this cookbook, then you have to think, well, look, how am I going to get people to know that I've got a cookbook out? And you have to think outside the box and you have to think like a PR and a, a marketing person. Mm. And then the the art and design side, I am heavily involved in the design aspect of the cookbook. I do a lot of the illustrations in my previous cookbooks had them all in, in this. In the notebook. Yeah, exactly. In the notebook. And then actually even for the Paris Kitchen TV show, I did like the graphic. Did you? Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's so cool. Thanks. I was like, right, I'm going to prove to my dad that <laughs> my art college degree was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's all it ever comes down to, isn't it? Proving dad's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you say that food was a very big deal in your house and you grew up with a Chinese Malaysian father and an Austrian mother. So I can't wait to hear what your first desert island dish of the day is. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Okay, I'm going to be controversial and okay. say three things. Okay, <laughs> I will allow <laughs> <All> it. <laughs> okay, so one thing which always happened on a Sunday, even though I had this multi like different kind of backgrounds and I but I grew up in the UK was we had a Sunday roast and I always remember my mum making a Sunday roast and I was always hungry oh. <laughs> you know I was like mum when is it gonna be ready on Sunday roast now <laughs> because you really loved it or because she made it quite late in the day <laughs> um, because I really loved it and the smell you know roast chicken mm. that like all the Yorkshire puddings in the oven um so that smell, it was just like, yeah, that's uh, something which I have lots of fond memories of. But the roast chicken, it always ended up as chicken porridge, like congee the Ooh. following day. And as a kid, I hated it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I have these memories of it. And now I love it, you know. But as a kid, it's like, oh, I don't want to eat leftovers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> breaded leftovers. But Whereas my, now, we I love know. leftovers. <laughs> yeah. And my mum was the queen of leftovers. Like, always finding clever ways to not waste any food. And, and there's a huge inspiration to me. And the way I cook now is my mum. And then... The last thing is a dessert, so I thought I could squeeze this in, is creme caramel. But my mum got the packets from Sainsbury. Oh. <laughs> and I remember these red packets with this 70s style. I wasn't born in the 70s, but it, it must have been 80s. But like 80s style photo on the on the front. But I loved the creme caramel. It was the best. <laughs> what, was it like a powder that you just powder. added milk to? Yeah, and you had like a little plastic sachet with this like caramel in it, which you mm. put in the bottom. <laughs> you squeezed it out. Um, but I have these memories of this and my dad loves creme caramel and it's in one of my books, A Little Paris Kitchen. So now... I make it sometimes for my parents when I see them. That's amazing. But I love that. So your mother was from Austria. Presumably she didn't grow up having traditional Sunday lunches. No. Something she adopted. Well, it's funny. So my mum grew up in Austria in this uh, tiny town on the border of Switzerland in the mountains. Think Sound of the Music. You know, it's like, it's so picturesque. But when she came to the UK, first they... The UK, at like end of the 70s, beginning 80s, they didn't have like, it wasn't multicultural in the way it is now. You yeah. had to go to the pharmacy to get olive oil. <gasps> so it was crazy. So the way you is have that to, true? Yeah. That's what my mum yes. told me. 
God, so, we don't yeah. even think about that now. It's crazy. Exactly. Isn't it? And so she had to learn about English food because she was an au pair, so she cooked for these kids, but it was mainly chips. Yeah. <laughs> and chicken nuggets. <laughs> and then when she married my dad, he still really loved to have curry for breakfast. <gasps> she told me when she was pregnant, she didn't know how to make Malaysian curry. So she took it out of the tin and to warm it up and it made her so nauseous. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but so she had to learn how to cook uh, Malaysian and Cantonese food. Which I must think must have been so exotic back yeah. in the eighties, and coming from this little town in Austria, yeah, yeah, that's incredible. And I love how you say in Malaysia, people don't tend to ask how you are; they ask if you've eaten. <laughs> yeah, and I really like that because it's a polite way of seeing how that person is. So by asking that, you know whether they're financially well off. If they haven't eaten, then they're probably. <sighs> That was a way in the olden days to see how, you know, if they haven't eaten, then they probably have problems with money at home because they can't afford to eat. I see. So it's not necessarily offering them. Well, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so if they say, no, I haven't eaten, you give them food. Yeah, of course. No, no. And then probably if you have eaten, you'd still go and eat something. So no, no, no. So it's definitely to do with food, but it was also a way of being polite about seeing how people's situation is at home. That's so interesting. Rachel, Mm. I want you to tell us about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Okay. Maybe not cook, but bake. Okay, that's fine. All right, is that okay? Yeah, of course. Um, So I remember when I was at primary school, my mum made gingerbread with myself and a friend from primary school, and we made gingerbread people. (laughs) How politically correct. Okay, so men and women. (laughs) And I also had a teddy bear cookie cutter, used currants as the eyes, and yeah, my mum did a lot of baking with me as a kid. Oh, the dream. It wasn't until you'd graduated with a degree in art and design from Central St. Martin's and then worked for a few years in London as a fashion PR for the clothing chain Thomas Pink that you realized you wanted food to be your career. What brought about that decision? So when I was at art college, I found a dream student job. I was assisting on Sunday Time Style Magazine interior shoots. Ooh, which dream. was it was really well paid. I did have to carry a lot of like furniture around, (laughs) but um, it was very cool working on a photo shoot. And then I met a food stylist and then I, I was able to assist her. And funny enough, when I was assisting this food stylist, I actually worked on a Marks and Spencer shoot to, we were shooting curry packaging and I met David Loftus. (gasps) Stop it. Yes. So this is very strange. So I met him. And even back then, when I was just the girl running around making everybody tea and coffee and stuff like that, he was lovely. Was he? So when we met years later, when he shot the little Paris kitchen, I said, I remember you. We shot the little and he's like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I totally remember you. (laughs) But he was, I mean, it just says about somebody when they like, they're nice to everyone, including, you know, the person who's right at the bottom definitely that's so you basically got exposed to to that world and yes you, you just thought yes I really I loved food styling I loved like what 
you could be creative because I liked interior styling, but it was too much furniture. Yeah. So food styling, you know, food and like being creative, working with a photographer. But then when I graduated, you had to work for free, you know, you had to like assist for free. I couldn't afford that. I lived in London. So that's how I ended up in fashion PR marketing. And after a couple of years, I thought I really want to get back into that. And I, I spoke to some food stylists. And they said, you basically need more experience, like food experience. So either work in a restaurant, which for me was like, no, thank you. I've waitressed in restaurants. I've worked in catering. I know what it's like. Not for me. This was really before like chefing was cool. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Restauranting is hard. Yeah, exactly. I've worked in restaurants. I know what it's like. And um, they said, well, why don't you go to culinary school? So I thought, okay and that's how I decided to go study at culinary school and so was that in 2006 when you headed off to Paris yeah so a little bit it was a year before I decided so I I spent a year saving up money so I took on extra jobs like babysitting baking cakes for kids birthdays you know so I had to save up quite a lot of money to the fees for Le Cordon Bleu it's not cheap no (laughs) (laughs) and and you you just set off and went yeah I like the way I kind of made it happen was I um, set up a au pair job before I left because I needed to afford to be able to live in Paris yeah so with an au pair job I had a roof over my head I had a little bit of pocket money every week um, and I could combine that with my studies because the first six months I, I wanted to focus on learning French and then go into my Le Cordon Bleu course. Okay, so you didn't speak French when you no, went there? No, apart from, bonjour, yeah. <laughs> je m'appelle Rachel. Oh my goodness, that sounds like my level of French. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm so impressed with everything you've achieved because you seem to always be so certain of what you want and then you just set about putting the wheels in motion to make it happen. It's amazing. Does that feel like an accurate description of how you approach? Yeah, it's interesting. So when I think about it, I am very driven by objectives and goals. Mm. Um, And I've been like recently, I've been thinking a lot, what do I want to do? How do I want to move my career along? And I always make these like plans, like I have a big goal and then I break it down into a lot of small goals. So I always believe if you've got a really big objective, the way to hit it is like break it down into small steps. So every, so it doesn't feel overwhelming. So, you know, right, I want to write a cookbook. So when I moved to Paris, my goal was to study patisserie, learn French and get into food styling. So I'm like, how do I get into food styling? I need more experience. I need to contact photographers. I need to, so you break it down into like, how do you actually get there? Like in small manageable steps. Yeah, that's really good advice. Sorry, it's like a career. No, I love it. It's it's amazing. It's what people want to hear. The third desert island dish. What is the best dish you've ever eaten? Okay, right. I'm going to have to check my notes here. Because like, I mean, how do you even ask these this question? I listen to all your podcasts and you're like, um, I don't know. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, right. Sorry. (laughs) But that's the fun of being the person that asks the questions. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The best dish I've ever eaten. I think this is the dish which I always like, I really want to eat and I always crave, you know? What is it? And it's like, so it's in Malaysia. So Malaysia, the best food is really the hawker stalls, like the street food. And it's with the plastic chairs, plastic tables and the melamine. Am I saying that right? You know, those um, dishes, which if you throw on the floor, they don't break. Yep. And it's this guy who does one ton me. 
So he only does, he's done one ton me his whole life. His dad has probably done it. His grandpa is like the whole family business. So one ton me is like one ton noodles with wonton dumplings and then chasu, a pork. And um, it has a special sauce. I don't know what's in the sauce. It's so good. And then really important is on the table, they have these jars of pickled sweet and sour chilies. So you get that hit of spice, that sweetness and that sourness all at the same time. I literally eat the whole jar before (laughs) the dishes arrive. (laughs) But it's like insanely good. So you have your noodles with your chasu with the special sauce, and then you have a little bowl with the wonton uh, soup and the dumplings. Ah, okay. Um, and the, what's really good about the dumplings is often wonton dumplings, the skin, the wrapper is too thick. This one is you could see your like uh, newspaper through it. It is like, even now when I'm thinking, I'm like, where am I going to eat this? I'm yeah. in London. I'm going to have to book a flight to Malaysia. Sounds <laughs> like it would be worth it though. Where do we find him? Well, see, I don't know if he still exists. Okay. This is like the sad thing about Malaysia because of the way, you know, modern societies, a lot of kids, they don't want to take over what their no. parents are doing. So I always say like, go to Malaysia while you can, while there's still these like old guys doing this food yeah. or like grandmas cooking these dishes. I think Ipo is better yeah, than KL. You know, Ipo is like all Obviously, Penang. Everybody says Penang is the place to go for food. Do you think that's true? Like, do you think all of these food traditions are going to slowly disappear because our generation? Yeah, so I think so. I mean, I remember my first trip to Malaysia. I was staying at my granny's and she had the one-ton man who would come on this bike. This is before food trucks. This is 80s, okay? This is a a food cycle (laughs) because he had a bike with a little kind of cooking station on the front and he would make one-ton soup. He would ladle out. You'd go out with your bowl and, you know, pay him and he would fill up your bowl with one-ton soup and noodles and all the garnishes and he would just go around like shouting it, one time man, one time man. Like, I don't know. I just remember he had this special kind of cool, like an ice cream truck, yeah. but for one time. Oh, the dream. I know, but he doesn't exist anymore, you know? know. So it is a bit sad. But hey. Maybe there's a business opportunity here, Rachel. Oh, yeah. Maybe I should get a one-ton bicycle. <laughs> I'll be cycling down around Kensal Green. One-ton. Anybody want one-ton? Oh, God. In that case, I'm definitely <laughs> moving to Kensal Green. Okay. So you wrote two books in French whilst you were in France. And then you describe a slightly sliding doors moment, which incidentally is one of the greatest films ever. But in that you were all set to move to Australia. But you randomly emailed a publisher with your book idea. And then they emailed you back. Yeah. So I was set to go to Australia, but then something happened, which meant I couldn't go to Australia. And then I was like, how I need to change my life. I was lying in my futon bed in my studio, the one you see on TV, which is real for everyone who doesn't believe me. (gasps) Do people Uh, not believe it? No, they think the BBC had some big budget to build a like a fake studio. I'm like, yes, that sounds feasible. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think so. So we filmed in there and I was lying on my futon bed staring at the paint peeling off the ceiling and thinking, I can't live here anymore. You know, I hear my neighbors snoring. (laughs) There's mold in the corner. This is like, I don't like this anymore. I need to, you know, up it. I need to make something happen. Like, right, I don't want to work with the French anymore. I found it super difficult. So I'm like, I want to work with the English. I want to write a cookbook in English. And I was like, okay, what ideas do I have? Put some ideas together. And then I just emailed my favorite publishers. I'm like, 
hey, my name's Rachel. I do this. Can I have 10 minutes to pitch some ideas? I know you're super busy. And out of those 10 emails, I got three meetings. So I went off to back to London <gasps> to find my fortune. And I mean, three like, out of 10 is pretty, pretty good. good. Yeah. But then one turned out was so funny. So I met this one lady at this publisher. And she the reason why she wanted to meet me was because she wanted to do, she wanted to move to Paris and wanted all the tips. <laughs> Stop it. So she looked at my ideas like, yeah, it's not for us. But you know, you live in Paris. So how does that work? How did you do that? And I'm like... Oh my God, I flew over from Paris for this. Yeah, exactly. So, but I was very fortunate that the editor at Penguin at the time, Lindsay Evans, she sat down and she took me for a cup of tea and she loved the idea and really encouraged me to write a proper proposal for the Little Paris Kitchen because they had some other ideas. And then, um, cause the other, another publisher said I didn't have any TV. I didn't have enough media behind me. This was before social media. I had okay. a blog. Yeah. I wasn't big enough in the blogging world. Okay. So they, to, to publish a book. Yeah. So they wanted, they wanted me to have like more kind of, I don't know, more exposure. Okay. And I didn't have any at the time. So, but then I leveraged, I said, Penguin are offering me a book deal. So what about you? So then I got an agent involved and she kind of like got them to battle it out a little bit. <laughs> That's incredible. And so you you did end up getting a book deal with Penguin. Yes. Yeah. Which is amazing. And lots of people would kind of stop there and write the book, but you didn't. You set about finding a production company to pitch the idea for a TV show. I mean, that's just so impressive. How did you even know where to start with something like that? Well, you know what? I'm always somebody who thinks you've got to be in it to win it. You're just like, if you've got something you want to do, you just have to try it. Yeah. So at the time I was writing the cookbook, I was having my pop-up restaurant to test recipes on people. And the idea came from, okay, I don't, I can't afford a restaurant, but I have room for a table for two. And I was thinking it could be good way to not uh, waste food, save the money on testing recipes, and also generate a little bit of interest for the cookbook. This was pre-social media, but Facebook was big at the time. Okay, MySpace was going out and newsletters. So people would, and Twitter was kind of coming in slowly. So I used that to, for people to sign up to getting the table and it I had a waiting list it was crazy it's a really genius idea yeah it was it was so much fun I still have the little book of everybody signing like like the menu and they would write a little comment and I met so many amazing people but anyway I uh diverse digress digress I digress um so back to the production company so I was like you know what nobody's doing anything like this in, on TV. I want to tell my story of what it's like to live in Paris and what it's really like. And I felt like, yeah, why not? Let's go for it. Definitely. Why not? But presumably these companies have dozens of people approaching them with the next big idea, or they come up with their ideas sort of in-house. How did you persuade them to take you on? Well, it helped that I had a, a cookbook deal already. With Penguin. Yes. So okay. so they already like, ah, oh. so obviously Penguin, huge publisher. They're like, they've, they're investing into this woman. So there's something to it. And my literary agent, they had a TV department or they have a TV department. So she set me up with the TV agent and she set up some meetings. Okay. So that helped. But if I think about what I'm doing right now, 
So I'm still hustling. I'm hustling left, right and center. So I will email people. I call directors up, uh, CEOs, um, like for this cookbook coming up, I called up a Swedish company saying, hey, I'm doing a Swedish cookbook in the UK. Do you want to sponsor some workshops and give me some free stuff? <gasps> oh, Rachel, I feel like you're my hero. So I'm like, it's it's scary, you know? And And is the trick just not to be deterred if you get a no or if people ignore you like a no is the worst that can happen isn't it yeah I mean I get ignored all the time (laughs) so I'm so used to it and I even get ignored like when I'm introduced by somebody so you know what Oh, really that's interesting yeah I am like I'm so used to setback if you want to make it in life you need to push yourself you are going to fail but it's how do you handle that failure and seeing those obstacles as okay it didn't work out the way I want to, but what can I gain out of this? And how can I make it into something positive? So, I mean, a lot of people say, well, why aren't you back on TV? Well, the reason why I'm not back on TV is, well, I'm a bit busy, but also (laughs) because I don't control who commissions TV. Yeah, You know, I put ideas out there, but it's not right for X, Y, Z. So, you just got to keep on at it. Yeah. And also TV isn't the be all and end all. Like, no. As you say, you've done so many things since then. So yeah, I think that's very understandable. <laughs> the fourth desert island dish is what is your favorite sandwich? Okay. Right. So my favorite sandwich, I had to think about this a lot. I think because, oh, yeah, it has to be since moving to Sweden, I've lived there for a couple of years. So it's kind of like a sandwich. It's an open sandwich. Okay, that's absolutely fine. Is that okay? Yeah, <laughs> People always get so worried. They're like, how strict, strict. Oh, yeah. <laughs> are the rules? So it's an open sandwich. It's toasted brioche fried in butter with a thick dollop of creme fraiche, finely chopped red onion, finely chopped chives, and then lorom. So Karlix Lorom, Karlix is a place in the north of Sweden and it's a particular caviar. It's not, it's more sweet than salty. And oh my goodness, I could eat 10 of them. Yeah, I think I could too. The creamy, the kind of bit of, you know, heat from the onion, the flavor of the buttery, crunchy brioche toast, and then that salty sweetness from the uh, Lorom. Oh. Yes. And then we just need to take a pause to appreciate that, that sandwich. Is that something that you always make yourself or have you found somewhere in Sweden that makes amazing ones? Well, most restaurants, like classic Swedish restaurants, will have it on them. Okay. So it's super popular. Um, and For then, good reason. Yeah. Because people, I always, when I go to a restaurant, if that's on the menu, I have to order it. Oh, okay. That's a good tip. Um, but, and then on special occasions you make it at home because the the Carlex Lodom is not cheap. Okay. Yeah. It's not like a everyday thing. Um it's, it's a special occasion. Exactly thing. a special occasion. Well, I like the sound of a special occasion sandwich. Yeah, sandwiches <laughs> are not just for every day. They're no, for special occasions. They are. Too. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> I read an interview where you said that when you told your mom you were going to have your own TV series, she was kind of surprised that people were going to want to watch you on TV. What do you think your mom envisaged you doing? Uh, I don't know. What did my mum envisage me doing? I think my parents were really happy when I worked in fashion PR marketing. Okay. And they didn't want me to go to Paris. They thought you should stay, pay off your student loan and then go 
like you're never going to pay off your student. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so yeah, I guess because when you watch TV as an outsider, you always think these people are like something. Well, maybe, they're probably special, but <laughs> I don't know. Something like you have to be trained. You know, it's not regular people who end up on TV. And certainly yeah. back then, this is like six years ago. So the TV landscape has changed slightly. So my mum was like, oh, the BBC want my daughter. That's like, she doesn't have any TV training, <laughs> you know. Um, and I literally thought when I got the deal that they'll send me on some BBC presenter course. Yeah. Like, so I'll learn how to present. And they literally just plonked me in front of the camera. And the director said, yeah, Rachel, what are you cooking now? And I'm like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that obviously, they obviously had a lot of faith in you. I think that's a compliment that they didn't have to send you on something like that. Yeah. And I was, also, I think it worked better in hindsight because otherwise you it wouldn't have been me. So yeah. the, what you see on TV is pretty much me. So yeah. like all the like mistakes, the messiness, the hair. Like I did my own hair and makeup. And actually what was funny, right at the beginning of the filming, we filmed this one recipe. And like five weeks later, towards the end, the editor in the editing suite said, it's not cutting. You need to film it again. You need We need another section of this again. Okay. And my fringe was a lot shorter back then. <laughs> and it was already a long day. It was coming towards the end of the day. And the director said, Rachel, you need to cut your fringe. And I didn't have any hairdresser scissors. I only had like blunt kitchen scissors. So I cut my fringe. <laughs> we were filmed this really late. And in the end, they turned around. We don't, we can't use that. <gasps> Why? Gonna... Because of your friend? No, because oh. it was, it was too dark. It just didn't work. Oh. And I was like, I cut my fringe for no reason. <laughs> but like, it's not fair. That is very annoying. But yeah, it shows a lot about you as a person. They think that you're willing to do that. Yes. For your art. And <laughs> um, your career has been so exciting and you've done so many brilliant things. Has the past been smooth or have you had roadblocks along the way or things that haven't gone according to plan yes yeah (laughs) for anybody who you might think is successful will have had so many failures and obstacles um but the reason they are successful is because they've overcome them you know and i think about like the many shows i've tried to pitch the many projects i've tried to make happen i mean the last you know year or so i mean my my personal situation has changed a lot because I now have a kid. So that completely changes everything. And you look at, I can't work 24-7. Like beforehand, I worked all the time. Yeah, I was like, you know, there was no stopping me. Now I'm like, I look at my work and my motto for 2018 is work less, earn more. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really succeeding that much this year, but I'm trying it. And I'm I'm looking at my work now. I'm like, how can I make my work work for the fa- like family life I want you know yeah. I can't go traveling around like off to Korea or whatever like I get these offers to go work abroad it's it doesn't work in the same way so I need to like look at my career and change things to make it work for how I want my life to be yeah and that's not easy no you know not so yeah the obstacles are there there are plenty there like last year, you know, I set up Collect a couple of years ago. I built up this team of five people um, and then I had a baby and then I was trying to manage a team of people from Sweden and it just didn't work. Yeah, And it was Impossible. like too stressful. And so last year I decided, you know what, I'm going to like downsize things and make things simpler in my life. So unfortunately I had to let some people go and that's really tough. 
but I'm much happier just having less. Yeah. I'm still doing more, but yeah. less. <laughs> You're on the path to doing less. <laughs> Rachel, the fifth desert island dish. What is the dish you eat the most often? Okay. So this would have to be a fridge forage. Yes. I am all for like using up leftovers. I worked with the UN a couple of years ago, like to encourage people to use leftovers. So I look in the fridge and see what I have, especially when I'm in Sweden. My husband comes from this little village in the countryside and we visit often. And when you're in the countryside, you're like, what do I have in the freezer? What can I make into something? Or there's like a random onion at the bottom of the fridge. <laughs> it's, it's like your own personal ready, steady, cook challenge. Exactly. I loved ready, steady, yeah, cook. Yeah, me too. It's the Watched best. it all the time when I was a student. You know, Ainsley Harriet. Yeah, my yeah, favorite. <laughs> so do you have sort of a go-to fridge for it? So usually there's an onion, there might be some cheese in there. So it's usually some kind of pasta dish. So okay. you make some kind of sauce because everybody loves pasta. And yeah. then you might make kind of carbonara. But if you're Italian, you would like tr- cringe and yeah. shrivel away. <laughs> like that is not carbonara. <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, so you now, you now live in Sweden, hence the name of the new cookbook, The Little Swedish Kitchen. How long have you been living there? And how was it that you ended up there? So I've been living there for a good couple of years. And the reason I'm there, so Paris was for the love of pastries. Yes. Sweden was for the love. Oh, uh, I met a man. So nice. I met a Swede and not the vegetable kind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and tell us about Swedish food. Like what can we expect from the book? So for me, all my cookbooks have been like a personal journey. And this Swedish cookbook was an opportunity for me to try and make Sweden my new home and discover culture and discover it through food. I mean, food is such a great way to discover culture. I did that when I was living in Paris, learning a language. I mean, it's great when you learn a language. I just realized when I learned, uh, started to learn Swedish, what gravlux means, you know, the salmon. What does it mean? The grav means to bury and lux is salmon. So you're burying the salmon in like uh, salt and like a salt and like mm. dill kind of mixture with sugar. Um, and I'm like, ah, that makes sense now. So Swedish food is more than meatballs. Yeah. Definitely <laughs> more than meatballs. But what's interesting. Breaking news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is the, what I explored most was Husman's cost, which is Husman means houseman. It's like a literal translation, but it's actually about the home cooking. And the way Sweden's history is, it's it lies like in an area where it's hard to grow, you know, all year round. So you don't have the produce like you have in Italy or Spain or France. But that means you have to be creative with what you have. And it's a very modern way of cooking. Because if you think uh, of like Jamie Oliver's success last year with five ingredients. Yes. So like, right, I don't have a hand like loads of ingredients. How can I be creative and make something delicious out of these ingredients I have? Oh, such a fun way of cooking. Yeah. And the flavors are very familiar in the sense that you recognize them as a like a Brit. You recognize the flavors, but they're done in a different way. So I found a lot of familiar familiarity in there. And also the cookbook looks at the different seasons. So winter is very long in Sweden. Okay. <laughs> but there's a Swedish saying which goes, there's no such thing as bad weather. It's just bad clothes. Oh, that's such a good saying. I feel like that would be apt in England at the moment because the summer has just 
not appeared yet. <laughs> uh, Rachel, the sixth desert island dish is your go-to dinner party dish. Huh, yeah, so my go-to favorite dinner party yes. dish, right? This is um, something I've adopted. So every year in Sweden, you have a crayfish party. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you go fishing for crayfish. Yep. So we usually make it a weekend. So we invite friends over and we're in the countryside. You go fishing for crayfish. You put the cages down, bring the cages up. You cook the crayfish, you brine them like uh, with loads of dill and beer and a salty brine. And then you like have a crayfish party and you have like these mounds of crayfish and you have like a Vesta bottom pie, which is a cheese pie, which goes with it. You wear funny paper hats <laughs> and you sing Swedish songs and drink schnapps. Oh my goodness. That sounds like my kind of party. Yeah. It's <laughs> so much fun. I mean, the crayfish, I mean, it's not the most amazing I think it tastes great but I wouldn't say like you know you'd write home about it it's more the whole experience yeah because it's such a fun thing to do if I were to say if there's anything you should do you go to Sweden and you have the opportunity to go to a crayfish party go to one and is there a particular time of year that happens yes so crayfish season is end of August beginning of September okay yeah so you're going back just in time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Specifically for that reason. Yeah. <laughs> I read a motto of yours from a while back that said, eat whatever you want, whenever you want, but make sure it's good quality, which I loved. Hopefully we've weathered the storm of clean eating, but does that motto still sum up your approach to food? Yeah, I can't believe I said that. That's really yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> you did. <laughs> yeah, I would say pretty much it sums it up. I'm like a very kind of balanced approach to food. And that's the way I've done the book. You know, you've got things for like when you went to indulge days for when you want something fresher and lighter days when you need something quick on the table so like basically like how I want to eat really yeah definitely and I think life is too short you know enjoy like I, and it's so tough out there you know yeah. there's like constant battle so why not indulge into something delicious but you're just gonna have to balance it out with you know like a really colorful salad or whatever, you know, it's all about balance because well-being is super important and food has such an effect on how you are. Yeah, It's crazy. And I notice when I overindulge, I definitely feel like uh, tired, yeah. you know? So I know when my body, uh, listening to your body, really, you know, when you're tired, Maybe you need to up your exercise or, you know, eat like more veggies or whatever. I'm no nutritionist. I just listen to my body and think balance is best. Yeah. And that's why your books are so clever. Because as you say, there is food for every occasion, no matter how you're feeling. And I think that's probably partly why they're so popular, because that is how people tend to eat, isn't it? I hope so. I hope that's what well, that's how I like to eat and how I entertain, you know, I entertain not as much as I used to, but I remember like some people I know who come around for dinner, I know their palate's a bit like this or they want this. So I kind of, I'm very flexible in that sense, like making things work for what the occasion is. Yeah. Before we get on to the final question of the day, to add to our cookbook corner on Desert Island Dishes, what is your favorite ever cookbook? Okay, so I have two. One of them, which is from my grandma. My grandma gave it to my mum. It's like this cheesy, I think it's 70s because of the way it looks. Oh, it's yeah. falling apart. It's called 
das neue Donauland Kochbuch von uh, Albert Koch Ranak. Okay. It's like it's in German. It's from my grandma. Oh my goodness! Look at the photos. It looks amazing. So it's got a few scribbles in it. Look at that. I know, <laughs> and some hideous pictures, and some like notes of like recipes, and I even think it's got something written in the front. So this was your grandma's cookbook? Yeah, which my okay. mum gave, my grandma gave it to my mum. So it says, uh, this has a message at the beginning, said, Weihnachten 1977, so Christmas 1977, deine dich immer liebende Mama. So this like, from your always loving mum. That's what my oh. grandma wrote to my mum. And this was 1977 when she just, when my mum just left or was about to go to England. Okay, so she would have actually, she would have been cooking from this. Yes. So, uh, How amazing yeah. is that? It was her equivalent of the Little Paris Kitchen. It was, exactly. <laughs> and then I have another book, which is uh, French Provincial Cooking by Elizabeth David. Oh, yes. Um, and oh, and look at all of the, I love all of those little post-it notes. That's what I do <laughs> as well. A lot of post-its. <laughs> and this one is from 1960. And this was given to me... By, I have like a, a foster, English foster granny. So when my dad was 17, he came to the UK and he uh, was all on his own and his best friend at boarding school, their family kind of took him in during holidays. So they kind of like fostered him. So yeah. I, I used to call her granny. So she was my English granny and this was passed on to me from her. Oh, that's so nice. Oh, Two excellent choices there, Rachel. The seventh final dish of the day is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Right. I am a greedy person, or maybe the French have a better way. I'm gourmand. Oh, yeah. That's, That's way better. Yeah. I'm gourmand. <laughs> I love to eat. I mean, I even have Little Miss Greedy, um, <laughs> Mr. Menko, a book. <laughs> so I would have to have dim sum. Mm. Because you have all the different dumplings, all the little dishes, uh, such a variety. I like the way you're thinking about quantity here. Mm. <laughs> and the ver variety. But it has to be, if you ever had dim sum where they have the little Chinese ladies pushing the carts? No. Do you know what? I haven't. I've only... No, I know. What have I been doing? I, that's the fun way. That's okay. the, the memories I have as a kid, when I was a kid in the 80s, Kid in the 80s. Yeah, I'm sounding so old now. Well, anyway, we used to come up to London on a Sunday. We'd go to church and afterwards we'd go with the other like uh, Malaysian Chinese families to Chinatown or um, Bayswater and we'd have dim sum. And we had dim sum where, where they had these ladies pushing the carts. And as a kid, you just like point, I want this, I want this, I want this. And it was just like, you know, dim sum after dim sum after like steaming baskets, you know, appearing on the table. And my dad's friends, like um, they knew how to call for all the things which weren't on the menu, the Cantonese oh. things. It's my dad's Cantonese um, because he's lived out the outside Malaysia so long that it's not very good. Okay. <laughs> and the waiter makes fun of him. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, but I, I don't speak any Cantonese. So I have like... I can't uh, say anything really. But yeah, I think dim sum would have to be dim sum with the ladies pushing the cars. Okay, I would definitely be joining you for yeah. that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rachel. Those were your desert island dishes. Thank you. So there we are. Another delicious day of desert island dishes. If you're listening and you haven't yet left a review, please do. 
It only takes a few seconds and it really does help others to find the show, which is obviously great. I've been doing this podcast for a year now, which is very exciting. And I can't believe how many of you are listening each week. I don't think I've missed a week yet. So I'm going to take a little break, only a very small one, and I will be back in September if not a little sooner. But in the meantime, do come and find me on Instagram. I'm now at Margie Nomora, and you can always go to the website, desertislanddishes.co, where there is a whole host of different recipes, plus lots of information about the different guests. And I will see you very soon. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.